Well, hello. I'm Alan Walworth, one of the pastors at First Presbyterian Church, and welcome to this series. It'll be a two-part series, and we're going to talk about one of the most difficult, one of the most important aspects of the Christian life, and it's forgiveness. If there's any clog in the pipe of our relationships with others, with God, and maybe even with ourselves, that clog is called forgiveness, unforgiven blockage. What do we do about that? How do we live with that? How do we live beyond it? And of course, it's such a natural part of, of all of our lives because, I mean, the truth is sometimes the things we're trying to forgive are monstrous. Somebody watching this video might, uh, when you think of sins against you, it may be horrific. You've been the victim of a crime or abuse or some uh, repeated trauma like that. And sometimes they're minor kinds of things. You invited someone to your daughter's wedding and they didn't invite you to theirs. And you, you invited them over to dinner, you didn't get invited to their house for dinner. And we build up these little scorekeeping and we lose relationships over it. How do we, how do we really just forgive? It seems unnatural, it's not easy, and yet it's so very important and the Bible talks about it a lot for our sakes, for the world's sake, for the kingdom of God's sake. So let's talk about forgiveness in this series and next. And I'm going to anchor it around those, those phrases that we use in the Lord's Prayer. We say the Lord's Prayer every single Sunday. And forgive us our debts, our trespasses, our sins, our flagrant abuses. Forgive us our debts, we say, as we forgive those to, who, to whom we are indebted. Forgive our debtors, we forgive our debts. So let's talk about today receiving this gift. And Lord, forgive us of our debts. Forgiveness is... Uh, always strikes us odd when it happens. You might remember in 1984, Pope John Paul, now Saint John Paul, Pope John Paul went to visit a Roman prison where Muhammad Ali Agha was the prisoner. You might remember that name because that's the man who tried to kill Pope John Paul. You know, fired a bullet at him, almost killed him, and truthfully, it really maimed Pope John Paul for the rest of his life. He limped from that in so many figurative and literal ways all of his life. But in 1984, Pope John Paul, on a January morning, entered that Roman cell to forgive his attempted assassin. It ended up with a weeping embrace. And we looked at that, the world looked at that and said, Wow, I, mean, I don't know if I could do that. How could? But then you think, well, he's a saint. He's a professional forgiver. He's a pope. I mean, how, so maybe it's different for him than ordinary people. And then in 2006, you might remember the Amish school shooting. There have been some terrible school shootings, mass shootings. But this one in 2006 in little sleepy Lancaster, Pennsylvania, Charlie Roberts, a milk delivery guy, went into a one-room school dismissed all but 10 of the little children, little 10 little girls, and proceeded to kill them in execution style, killing five, seriously injuring five others, and then turning his gun on himself. Unbearably, unspeakably monstrous and tragic, of course. Here's the thing the world reeled about, that within hours, the Amish people, the very ones whose children had been massacred, were coming to the Roberts' home to grieve with the killer's mother and father, embracing them. One man held Robert's father's father in his arms as he wept for just an hour without saying a word. They brought food. At the killer's funeral, there were 75 people. Almost all of them were from the Amish community. Terry Roberts, the mother, now 
decades later, spends several days a week caring for one of the children who was most critically injured by her son. She says that we thought we'd have to move away. Uh, but they kept surrounding us with so many signs of love, forgiving us. And even if their son had lived, they would have forgiven him. Now, they wouldn't have asked him not to be freed from prison. They would have thought he should have to pay for that. But to forgive him nonetheless. And the world scratches its head and says, what? Wow, you know. But then these are people who don't have buttons and they wear, they're in carriages. So maybe we think like the Pope, they're not like the rest of us. How do, we, how do we forgive? It just isn't natural. Because here's what's natural. Here's the way our world is put together. We want justice. If you do something wrong, you pay for it. If you misbehave, you go put your nose in the corner and you're in time out. If you break the law, you go to jail. And the amount of jail time is dependent on how much of the law or how flagrant was the abuse. We think of a world of justice. We think of a world of fairness. And if you don't have that, people would just keep getting worse and worse and worse. So that's what we think is the world, how it ought to be. There ought to be scales that balance. In fact, we remember, deliberately remember past injustices. I'm filming this video today on the anniversary of 9-11, September 11th. It was 19 years ago on this day that the Twin Towers fell and the Pentagon was attacked and one, one of those planes went down in Pennsylvania. And the phrase is, remember 9-11, don't ever forget. We use that word a lot in our culture. Remember the Maine, we said, remembering the battleship Maine that was sunk off of Cuba's shores, the beginning of the Spanish-American War. Remember Pearl Harbor, uh, the beginning of World War II. Don't ever forget Pearl Harbor. Remember the Alamo, Texans and others say. Don't ever forget that conflict with the Mexican government. Remember, don't ever forget. That's, that's the way we would do. We would keep those memories alive. And frankly, even between fellow human beings with much less offense, sometimes... How, may, how, how about in relationships, good friendships, or even marriages, how much scorekeeping is there? Does anybody know somebody who never, ever seems to forget a slight or injustice, however small? You know someone who never, ever lets it go? You know what I mean. Well, that's the way we think the world should be put together. Forgiveness, however, flies in the face of all of this. It's, forgiveness is not about fairness. Forgiveness isn't about justice. Forgiveness is not about someone being paroled or acquitted from a crime. For, forgiveness is they're guilty, but you still just pardon them. Forgiveness is not letting a debt go because you finally paid it off every payment with all the interest. For, forgiveness is tearing up the IOU even though they didn't make, they didn't make all the payments. Forgiveness doesn't make sense. It's scandalous. It's risky. It's counterintuitive. No wonder it's so hard. No wonder we're not very good at it. It doesn't seem like the kind of thing we can do. And that's the reason that the 18th century British poet Alexander Pope said it so very well. To err is human, that we get. To forgive, divine. To err, errors, human. To forgive, divine. Maybe only God can do this. And indeed, God does. Here's the thing about forgiveness. It all does start with God, the view you have of God. And this is what was brand new, earth-shaking new in the revelation of God to Abram. God calls out to Abram and to Sarah and says, 
I want to bless you. Get up and leave where you are. Go to a land I'm going to show you. I'll let you know when you get there. But I'm going to bless you, and then through you, I'm going to bless the entire world. This is also the God of creation, of course, who created not because God was lonely and wanted someone to worship him. God created because being alive was so wonderful, God wanted to share it. God is just generous that way. And then after creating... And after giving us freedom so that we could be in relationship, this is what God always wants, then we mess it up again and again and again. And what does God do? Does God just wipe his hands of it all and say, well, that didn't work? No. God just keeps on pressing forward, keeps on finding a way to try to get back into relationship with us prodigals. That's the God that God reveals himself to be in both the Old and certainly in the New Testament. This is a brand new idea, though, considering what all the other religions around had known all the way up until this time. That in the creation myths, for instance, of the, Babylon, of, the, of the Babylonians and of the Egyptians, they thought creation was the gods getting in a, in a fit of madness and just sort of going off into different corners and creating, you know, the ocean god wanted the oceans and the land god wanted the land, and it was just their way of getting away from each other like siblings fighting. Uh, they didn't have a sense of a creation that he emanated out of love and generosity. Whole different idea. And the gods of the Baal worship, the Canaanite gods in that land of Israel where they came, it was a fertility religion. The gods were sort of ambivalent about humankind. They didn't really care about humans. You almost had to wake them up and get their attention. You had to inspire them with fertility cult in order to get them to bless either fertility for the herds or for a child you were wanting or for your crops to do well. And so the, the religion was about trying to get the gods on your side because they were either indifferent or maybe even against you. The Greco-Roman gods my goodness, that was like a dysfunctional family up on Mount Olympus. But the thing is, the gods were to be feared. They interrelated into humankind, but almost always when the gods visited, it was not good. They were messing around in the world, and you had to be afraid of them. And religion was a matter of just staying out of the gods' way. It was like being a child in, a, in an angry home where the mother and father are fighting in the back room all the time. And so it was hard to figure out how to have any kind of caring relationship with those kind of gods, because these were gods to be feared. They thought that the gods rode on the stars. In fact, the Greek word for planet, planao, means deceiver because the stars were in place, but they noticed that some stars moved around in unpredictable ways. These were actually the planets orbiting the sun. And so they named those stars, these planao, these deceiving stars, these planets, they named them after their, their Roman pantheon. So you got Mercury and Mars and Venus and Jupiter and Saturn. These were the names of their gods. They thought they were riding their chariots up there, and they believed that the gods in these chariots were controlling and making things happen often for our for our bad down here on earth. And so religion was trying to stay out of their way. Our word disaster, aster star. A disaster means a bad star happened. That word is still in our language. But this is not the God we see in the Bible. Even later, the ancient Druids and the Celtic people, you know that phrase, knock on wood? They, got, they believed that there were all these spirits and gods that lived in the trees, animating the trees. And you had to knock gently on the tree so that you could make sure that you were in a friendly relationship like you'd knock on the door before you entered someone's house. Knock on wood. It's a way of trying to be lucky, trying to get the gods to bless you. Anyway, none of that is the case in the biblical story. Here we have a God who not only creates out of abundance and love and generosity. Here's a God that wants to stay in relationship with his creation who wants to redeem even when we keep messing it up again and again. Here's a God who's always loving the prodigal creation, and especially humankind. 
this is the God we're dealing with. And, and what does God do? When God did, you couldn't make God do it, you couldn't earn it, God forgives. God forgives. And the Bible talks about this in a number of you know, wonderful ways. Uh, Jeremiah 31, 34. I will forgive their sins and I will remember them no more. Well, don't you wish you could forget as well as forgive? Well, God does. God actually has the ability to deliberately forget. God doesn't remember our sins when God forgives them. That's it. Pretty remarkable, isn't it? Uh, or you have Psalm 103, 12. I forgive their transgressions, God says, and I'll remove them as far from me as the east is from the west. Pretty far. This is what God wants to do. We cannot be good enough to earn that. We don't sort of pay off a debt and get back into God's good graces because we did more good things than bad things. This is what only God can do. And here's the thing. God wants to do it. God wants to be in relationship, and had not God wanted to, there wouldn't be any way to get God to do it. God wants this. God wants to forgive. Alexander Pope, you were right. Erring is human, but forgiveness, that's divine work. And God is really, really good at it. It's God's signature move. And sometimes the people God forgives are monsters. The book of Jonah is a story about a prophet being sent to the worst people in the world, the people of Assyria and their capital city, Nineveh, the city, the country that had just come and wiped out the northern kingdom of Israel where Jonah was from. And at the midst of all that, this most heinous of all countries in the world at the time, and God sends Jonah not to destroy them, not to call down fire and brimstone, but to call down repentance and forgiveness because God even loves Assyrians. God is not the enemy of our enemy. God loves us all. God doesn't just choose me. God chose everybody. And if you're one of God's chosen ones, the point of being chosen was to announce that other people have been chosen too. It wasn't a little private thing. And God not only forgave the Assyrians and forgave, who had this wonderful renewal, God even forgave and loved that petulant prophet Jonah who was mad at God for forgiving his enemy. This is the nature of God. He's scandalous about his forgiveness. It's just what, it's what God does. And then Jesus comes, the very embodiment. He announces God's forgiveness, but he also, he also demonstrates it. He does it with his very being. It's not only what he says, it's, it's what he does. You remember in Mark chapter 2, the paralytic, the guy, you know, he's in front of Jesus. They laid him down through the roof. And Jesus' first word to him is not about healing his limbs. His first word is about healing something deeper in the man. He said to him, son, son, your, your sins are forgiven which caused quite a scandal in the religious community who, as they said, who can forgive sins but God alone? And they were more right than they knew because it was God alone there doing it. But sin, your, son, your sins are forgiven. I'm wondering how many people watching this video are locked up, paralyzed in a way, uh, from sins that won't let you go or that you won't let go. What about if we could hear God saying to each of us, son, daughter, your sins are forgiven. And you notice the paralytic hadn't done anything. He didn't do a set of atoning acts. He didn't do a lot of good deeds. He didn't, uh, you know, he didn't do anything to create his own reconciliation. It was just given. And then he's also allowed to stand up and to walk. And of course, he dances with joy. But he's different from the inside. It's not just his limbs that get cured. This is the kind of forgiveness that Jesus 
gives out. Or there's a sinful woman in Luke chapter 7. We don't know what her sins were. We can only imagine. But when Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee, this woman comes in, not on the invitation list, and she's just weeping at his feet and crying at his feet and drying it with her hair and putting perfume on his feet. And, and it scandalizes everybody there because apparently everybody knows she's the town sinner. And Jesus ends up saying, he says, you know, she's been forgiven much, and so she loves much. I don't know where it is that she exactly met Jesus. I don't know how it is that she knew that she was forgiven somewhere earlier on off camera of that story. But here's the thing. When you've been forgiven like that, it changes everything. Uh, you cannot help but love. It just begins to respond out of you. It's, it's the response. Her loving is not in order to be forgiven. Her loving of him was because she was forgiven. And this is what God wants for all of us. You remember the adulterous woman in John chapter 8. A woman caught in the very act of adultery. No question, adultery is a very sinful, wrong thing. Lots of Bible about it. Lots of destructiveness comes of that. Some of you listening to this video, that is the sin. That's the blockage that you're struggling with. Someone has betrayed your love and your trust that deeply, or someone you know. Even that one, this is the woman who's thrown at his feet, just as everybody's getting ready to stone her. What does Jesus do? He says, well, okay, everybody take stock first. You with rocks in your hands. If you're so clean, so pure, if you're sinless, go ahead, hurl a rock. And, of course, they don't. As the Scripture says, from the eldest to the least, they drop their stones, which I hope means that the older we are, the more we live, if you're paying attention, the less right we know we have any right to throw stones at all. Sometimes the young people hang on to them a little bit longer. <laughs> they haven't lived long enough to realize how complex life can be, right? Anyway, they all drop it. And then the only one who had the right to throw stones, who was indeed sinless, Jesus, doesn't throw a stone either. Instead, he gives her a wreath of forgiveness. Now, he calls her sin what it is, but he says, go and sin no more. But he creates for her a whole new future. As someone has said, every, every saint has a past. Maybe only you and God know it. But every sinner has a future. And he knew her past, but he also knew her future. You might remember, of course, from the cross, Jesus extends this incredible radical gift to all of us. Father, forgive them, Luke 23. Father, forgive them, for they, they know not what they do. Even though those Romans knew exactly what they were doing. And those who were jeering knew exactly what they were doing. But they didn't know the depth of it. And so he gives them a gift they could not have earned, that they did not ask for, they didn't appreciate at the day. Father, forgive them. All of us. That ripples down to all of us. Because that's where we all are. We're all in such desperate need of this incredible forgiveness that God offers us. Have you ever seen Rembrandt's painting of the return of the prodigal? It's this wonderful image. Of course, Rembrandt does light. But he has this picture of the prodigal son kneeling before the father in the shadows, the older brother scowling. But the father there with his hand on his shoulder, having put him back in a robe, having restored him into the household when he thought he had lost it all. And indeed, he had given it all up. And make no mistake about it, this prodigal has no, nothing about him you could like. He's, uh, he's not just the beloved, playful, younger son that everybody really adores. This, this younger son, knowing the older brother would probably inherit the land anyway, he says basically to his father, I can't wait for you to die, Dad. I'm getting tired of waiting. I want you to give up my, my part of the inheritance. I, I wish you were dead now. And <laughs> unbelievably, the father cashes him out and lets him have it. Probably knowing full well he'd do just what he did, he blew it all in the far country. And then, of course, he comes humbly back home. 
to live on his older brother's part of the inheritance, trying to be, you know, just be a servant. And this prodigal is welcomed back. It's a prodigal father about as much as prodigal sons because it's unbelievable, scandalous kind of grace to welcome him back like that. And yet this is where we are. Uh, we're one of or both of those two sons, truthfully. We're the prodigal who might have messed up so royally, or we might be the older brother who, whose sin is what he didn't do. Yeah, he stayed home. Yeah, he did all the things that were required, but look at what he didn't do, including he didn't come into the party to welcome his brother. The uh, Book of Common Prayer in the Episcopal Church, in their prayer of confession, they say it so very well, Lord, forgive us the things we did that we ought not to have done. And forgive us also for the things we left undone that we ought to have done. Our sins are of both kinds, and some, for somebody listening today, it might be the sin that's been hardest for you to accept forgiveness for is what you left undone. You didn't say, I love you, when you had a chance, and now they're gone. You didn't say, I'm sorry, while the relationship was still alive. You didn't send the card or encourage you didn't help the stranger. You passed by the poor and just said, well, it's not my family. It's not my, not my business. You shrugged off life and left undone what you ought to have done. But indeed, all of us also have our prodigal things we did we ought not have done. It's true. We all do. We are both of those boys. And neither one of those boys in the prodigal son story gets what he deserves. And here's what God wants. God wants to give us what we don't deserve either. God wants to give us forgiveness. We let it happen. And that's the question, the hardest question for some, but the most important one, because before we can even talk about forgiving others, which is the topic of next video, you have to receive forgiveness first because it's all anchored in our being forgiven. The thing that may be blocking you is not allowing what God so desperately wants to give you to accept his forgiveness, let it go. Whatever snake is whispering in your ear that you don't deserve it, sure not, but God wants to give it anyway. Whatever it is that's keeping you bound down and paralyzed, saying, oh, if they all knew, you, who are you to think that because of your past? Let God give you your future. Well, how do you do that? I mean, how do you do that? It may be slow, it may be gradual, but it's really rooted in what God wants to do, letting him do it. Arthur Garden has a wonderful book called A Touch of Wonder, and he gives three little uh, tidbits that I thought are pretty helpful for receiving forgiveness. First, he says, just remember it's what God paid a steep price to do already. Don't flaunt that. It's what God, you, sure, you can't earn it. Of course, you don't deserve it. Allow him to do what he wants to do. He wants to reconcile and be with you and forgive you. He wants to do it. Secondly, Arthur Gordon says, sometimes what helps is Every time you want to say, if only, if only I had done that, or if only I hadn't done that, or if only I, instead of saying, if only, every time that comes into your head, say this instead, next time, next time I'll do it. Think of the future that God's trying to give you. And finally, Gordon says, take those sins that keep besetting you and go to the seashore. We've got those right here in Southwest Florida. Write those sins, those failures, write them in the sand right by the seashore. And then sit back and watch the tide take them away. And let in that image, let that show you what God wants to do. Because here's what forgiveness is. It's simply erasing and letting it go. This is what God wants to do. 
This is what God's good at doing. And for your sake, and for all those that forgiveness coming to you as it's on its way through you might reach, let that happen. I pray that to be true for you, that you'll take a deep breath, you receive God's gift, and you'll allow him to forgive you. Let it go, friends. Let it go into the big, big embrace of the Father who welcomes you home. Next time, we're going to talk about how do we extend this kind of gift? How do we extend this gift of forgiveness to others? How can we do what is God's good business? Let's talk about that next time. Until then, take care.